a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Today we have with us a friend that I have not talked to for many years, but still is very near and dear to my heart. I met David through Utah politics, and he was working, I believe you were working at the Utah Republican Party at the time that we connected. Is that right, David? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, think, that's right. We were working at yeah. uh, the party, and I met you through that, through those opportunities and vote by mail stuff that we did. Uh, yeah. I think you might have been with Morgan Philpot at the time, too. Oh, that's right. Because you were working with Thomas Wright. And we, uh, I helped do the Get Out the Vote mm-hmm. mail program mm-hmm. in Salt Lake in 2010 mm-hmm. while I was working with the Morgan Philpot. So that's campaign. a while ago already, 2010. That's 12 years. People. I know. 12, yeah. 12 years. Yeah. And this mm-hmm. couple is very near and dear to my heart. So I saw David. I met him before he was married. Okay. And joining us also today is his lovely wife, Shalise. Shalise, say hi. Hello. Hi, Shalise. Tell us a little bit about you and your family. So we originally lived in Utah. We have been here in Florida for about seven years now. And we have three children, two of which are living and one who is deceased. And that's the story we're going to share with you today is about our daughter, Allison, who passed away. Yes. Um, And, you know, I knew you guys, you guys got married. I watched this develop and then we were so excited. You were pregnant and it was getting time to have this baby. Tell us, tell us what happened. Yeah. So right after we got married, um, we got pregnant pretty quickly and that pregnancy actually ended in a miscarriage. And then six months later, we got pregnant with Allison. And we were obviously very excited. And we went into the anatomy ultrasound at 20 weeks. And we didn't really know what to expect because this was our first experience getting an ultrasound and and seeing that. So they scanned around all the, the body systems and Everything was looking good except for around the face. There was something kind of blocking her face, and it, it looked like a big mass that was just kind of in the way. And we really, we really didn't know what that was. Like, yeah, uh, we we were we were totally, new totally to the, brand new to like this thing, and it was like yeah. the exciting. I left work for the day to yeah to go down. You know, your first kid, you're you're really excited yeah. about it. Absolutely. Well, and you're young, and the, and the whole world's ahead of you. Right. Right. And that's, of course, the visit when you find out the gender and 
So the doctor saw the mass and then he kind of rushed out of the room without telling us the gender. And we asked him, he's like, oh yeah, yeah, it's a girl. And then he went and got the doctor, another doctor, and they came back in. And what they told us is they thought it was just an enlarged thyroid and that chances are it could be resolved in utero. There's things they could do to make it go away. Um, And so we left that visit feeling optimistic and not too concerned. And we were also referred to a perinatologist who handles high-risk pregnancies for further follow-up. So we went and followed up with that doctor. And it was then that we were told just how severe of a condition that our daughter was in. Um, They told us that she had an oral pharyngeal teratoma. And that's a tumor that originates from the mouth and throat. And so wait a second, these are just some this is a 20-week-old baby. baby, an embryo. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, you're, you're still pregnant with this baby who's got tumors? I don't know that I've ever heard of that before. Yeah. I'm sure yeah, you it, hadn't it, either as a, as a young couple getting yeah. excited to bring this baby to the world. Right. And I mean, you just think, how could a, a pure new baby have a tumor like that just doesn't yeah. go together she hasn't been exposed you know? to any of the things that maybe cause cancer in life or conditions right, right and so they told us a lot of facts about these teratomas they said that one in every thirty-five thousand to 40,000 infants will have a teratoma and only between one and eight percent usually occur on the face And so pretty much that's one out of every 500,000 infants will have an oral pharyngeal teratoma, like our daughter. Wow. So incredibly rare. And they also told us at that visit that only 96% of teratomas are non-cancerous. Only 4% are cancerous. So we, we took all this information at this first visit and we thought the odds are very much in our favor. This tumor is not going to be cancerous. And there's things that can be done. The goal was for me to make it to at least 39 weeks because by then her lungs would be fully developed and then we would deliver her by C-section and they would operate on the teratoma. That was the goal. Yeah. And I I think the other thing is, I mean, you instantly go into Dr. Google, right? You start, you start looking up everything. Which is such a dangerous route to take. (laughs) It is. And uh, we found like stories of of them being able, even in utero to go in and do these amazing surgeries where they, they were able to remove it. And so it really gave us a ton of hope. And we knew that the perinatologists in Utah, they're, they're, they're some of the best, like Utah has some of the best perinatologists, which is really lucky for Utah. And so we just had so much optimism that, mm-hmm. okay, this is going to be a super hard trial, but we're going to get through this. We're going to rely on faith and hope and our, our family, and um, it's going to get us through this experience. Yeah. So we met with the perinatologist monthly, and, and they watched it closely. Unfortunately, I did end up going into preterm labor. I was at 27 weeks. And... They put me on bed rest in the hospital and monitored me. And unfortunately, while I was in the hospital, my water broke. And so oh, it, oh there's no going back. Yeah. it was go time. So what they did was they put me under general anesthesia and they delivered Allison. And how yeah. many weeks, how many weeks did you make it to at the time of delivery? Let's see. It was. Yeah, it was 27. 27. Oh, so just right then. So right. they put you in the hospital and your water broke pretty quick. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure and if you were in the hospital for a couple weeks first. It was just a few days. It wasn't very long. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so she was delivered by C-section and they were able to remove 90% of the tumor. And they did this thing called what's called an exit procedure. And uh -huh. so what they did is they put uh, Shalise really under really deep, uh, which they don't typically do. Uh, and that allowed Shalise to be anesthetized and Allison to be anesthetized. And they went in and uh, delivered her head and then literally did the surgery right on Shalise's wow. getting yeah. Getting the tumor removed and uh, establishing securing an, an airway, securing an airway yeah. uh, and all that stuff. And so the tumor that they pulled off of her was a pound and a half. It was oh my her gosh. Size. It was her. I was going to say, how big was the baby? Yep. She was only a pound and a half. And this another teeny. pound and a half tumor on that cute little face. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. As we said, the delivery was miraculous. Like she oh, yeah. survived it and we were shocked. We did not expect that outcome, but she survived it. And they transferred her over to primary children, NICU and um, that's where she was monitored. And so she lived two weeks after that. That was how long she was able to make it. Um, and those two weeks of time were probably the roughest roller coaster that we've ever yeah. had to experience oh. in our lives. Just lots of up and down, good news, bad news. The 3 a.m. phone calls. 3 a.m. phone calls saying that hey. her lung had collapsed and they had been able to resuscitate her. And everything was was stable again, so it was a very rough ride. Um, oh, just touch and go the whole time. Touch and go. Did, yep. Did they have a prognosis for you? Were Were they like we just don't know, or or were you still optimistic? We were still very optimistic. David did more Google research, and so I think he had more of like a reality. <laughs> this might not be good, but overall, we were both very optimistic. They told us that the goal at that point was she would be in the NICU until she reached what would have been full term. So she had time to grow and develop all the way, and her lungs had time to get stronger. And then at that time, the goal was to uh, remove the remainder of the tumor, and it would have required reconstructive surgery on her face and everything like that. But that was our goal, was to get 13 more weeks and let her heal and get strong enough to tolerate surgery. But unfortunately, just during the course of those two weeks, body systems began to fail. She had trouble regulating blood sugar. Um, she started to develop brain bleeds. Um, her liver and kidneys were not functioning well. Just all of her body systems were doing well. Yeah, and then but with that we'd have like good days where like she'd open her eyes yeah, or she or she would react to something that was in her environment, and so we'd have these also really amazing positive things yeah. happen to. And so it was just um, it's the roller coaster. Roller coaster. Yeah. yeah. Of okay, she's doing great, and then yeah. oh no, here's this bad news. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they talk about NICU PTSD, and yeah. it's a very it's a very real thing because real. of that because you're in this constant state of stress relief, stress relief. I appreciate both of you sharing this story because I think again we talk about pregnancy and cultural norms in our society. We tend to look at the mom, the woman, mm -hmm. the birth giver, and. And how difficult that would be to go up and down and those emotions of the miracle the baby survived birth and then the setback that this or that went wrong and back and forth. But it's hard on mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And you're exhausted and you haven't slept and the emotions 
kind of get to where your physical capacity is is so weak to be able to withstand one more piece of bad news or one more awesome day. And I imagine things are changing not day by day, but maybe a few hours at a time can bring such different news. That's exhausting to have so many miracles and so many worries, so many emotions in just a few days. That's a lot. We need to take a break. When we come back, I think we should talk about her passing, that moment of her passing. We'll be right back. (laughs) I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. We're back. So you've been on this roller coaster ride and you've had all of this really not great news. Nobody wants to know that their child has a tumor. And that has to be shocking alone, just processing what that actually means. It's just a lot to absorb and take in. Tell us, she's in the NICU. She's been battling for two weeks. You're on this roller coaster. Did you know that she was going to pass when she did or... What was that like? So, yeah, so we did. We had come in the morning that she passed. It's kind of our thing. We would go in the morning and, and visit her and spend several hours, and then I'd go off to work. But that morning, I ended up not uh, We came in. Um, our doctors uh, met us. And, um, we have some results that uh, we want to tell you about. And uh, so they pulled us into uh, a side room just off of the NICU, and um they sat us down and they told us, here's what's going on. She has a brain bleed. She's having gut and liver failure. She's, her lungs are struggling to oxygenate and things aren't looking good. And um, we also have now just found out that this teratoma that we pulled off of her is actually cancerous. Oh my gosh. And we can't treat her with chemotherapy because she won't survive it and we can't extract it. Uh, via surgery because she's just too fragile and uh, wouldn't make it. And I remember just sitting there in this chair, just like this almost out of body experience of just taking this like really hard news in. I remember saying to the doctor, I said, have we done everything that we possibly can? Have we done everything? There's nothing left on the table that we can't do and it was pretty much pleading like is there is there anything else is there anything that that we could possibly do to help her and I just remember the doctors and they were just so kind and so sympathetic and they said no 
it's time to oh. um, start thinking about end of life and, and that and considering the possibility of, of removing life support and uh, all of that. And so uh, we kind of just sat there in that moment and just kind of held each other and cried, but also knew that like it was time and that the right decision was to um, start the process of making her comfortable and letting her pass. Mm. And um, so we called all of our families it was, uh, to come up to primary children. And they all, I mean, they dropped everything. We had, I had a brother in Las Vegas and just started driving as fast as he could up I-15 to get to Salt Lake in time. And so we had about another six hours with her after we had that meeting uh, with the doctors and we had family there and it was a really hard day too because she started opening her eyes that day yeah that was the first day that yeah. she looked at oh. us and she was so again it was that positive news and then negative news yeah. big negative news yeah. oh. but what was that moment like for you Shalise, when that doctor's giving you that information it hit me by surprise the most because i wasn't doing all of this research on the side that david was doing and so I had no doubt that she was going to be healed. It was going to be fine. It was all going to work out. And so when I received that news, it totally knocked the rug out from under me. It pulled it out from under me. It was very hard. And you've just given birth and your body is emotionally and chemically completely not balanced and you're exhausted. That is so much. My my heart just breaks for you imagining this and, and walking through this in my mind, this journey you've taken. And you're so young. Yeah, You're so, so young. Did you have, I was just thinking, did, did you have either of your parents, did you have other family support? I know the NICU is very restrictive on who they allow in the actual space, but did the two of you have outside support? Did you choose to maybe just keep it closer to the two of you alone? What was your support like besides each other? Each other's awesome. I love that. Did you also have some other support or was it kind of the two of you on your own journey? No, we had wonderful support from family and Um, We called many of them up, as David mentioned, to come be with us as she passed. Both of our parents were with us and all of our siblings, friends in our neighborhood, friends in our church. We had the biggest circle of people who were there helping us through our loss. It was wonderful. Yeah, we were totally felt by the community. Yeah. And immediately following, uh, we had friends who developed a, a GoFundMe page to help uh, offset just the, the medical yeah, costs. It's a very and that expensive was, journey. Yeah. Yes. And, and we were really embraced. I mean, at that point uh, in time, I was still pretty involved in Utah Paul. This was in 2014. At the time, I was the vice chair of the Young Republicans. That organization rallied around me, and friends like Michelle and others within that community were, yeah. were also. Evelyn, yeah. uh she was Evelyn Call at the time, Evelyn Everton, and I did start that GoFundMe page, but we just didn't know what else to do. I mean, it it was it was just such a tragic, do do? Yeah. surprising loss, yeah. you know, and, and just the mm-hmm. diagnosis itself. I don't think any of us had heard anything about something like this before. Mm-hmm. It was you know, unfortunately, educational, didn't even know something like this could happen. I'd say the community was also kind of on this hope journey with us. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I feel like they were, and I, you probably oh, con- could speak to this. Yeah, constant more, prayers. But, yeah. 
but they were riding the roller coaster with us yeah. and that was also a blessing uh, but it was also, I could tell that it was really hard for the community around us, too. Yeah. It was. Well, we wanted your loss becomes everyone's loss. Yeah. You know, we wanted so much. I mean, here we'd seen you get married and then you guys are starting off and having your family. It's all exciting, right? It's all the exciting parts of life. And, and we want nothing but joy and happiness for you. And it just ends up being not what anyone would want for you. It was hard. It was hard to love you and be excited for you. And then to see you have to really take some really hard life lessons right from the beginning. It was hard. It was hard for all of us. And we love you. You're a great guy. And um, meeting Shalise and seeing you happy together. I mean, we just wanted the world for you guys. Tell me what that next few weeks and months looks like. Walk us through You've had this difficult conversation with the doctor. You know the end of life is coming. You're going to bury a child. Walk us through that and maybe some of those helpful people or helpful instances that carried you through that initial grief. So part of having a NICU baby, especially one that was as premature as Allison, she spent her two weeks of life in an isolate, which is pretty much a plastic box with a bed. And the only access you can have to her is reaching two hands in through holes on the side of the box. I don't know if you can picture that. But so that was our experience with getting to interact with her this whole two weeks. And even then, even sometimes touching her or too much noise, it would upset her or it would make her oxygen levels unstable. And so really, we had very limited abilities to interact with her. We couldn't hold her in the traditional sense that a mom who has a baby that's healthy gets to, you know, you get that experience the first time breastfeeding her, you know, or holding her or cuddling her skin to skin. I I didn't get to have any of that experience during those weeks. Um, and so all when the things you look decided, forward to during the pregnancy and you read the books about and the other ladies, you know, and your mom and your aunt and your grandma tell you about. I mean, it's such a cultural thing, childbirth. And so that proved to be very difficult for both of us. So when we decided to remove life support, that was one of the things that we got to finally hold our daughter and hold her as she passed away. While it was very, very devastating and sad, it was also such a treasured experience because it was something that I had wanted for so long was to cuddle my my girl. Um, yeah. yeah, we we got to hold her as she passed. Mm-hmm. Um, how how much that's time the first did time you have her. with her in your arms? How much time? It was about an hour. Oh, just just yeah. not long enough. Not no. long enough at all. No. So, yeah, it was very hard. And after the loss, for me personally, I I felt numb. Like as we went through the memorial service and the graveside service, I felt numb through it all. And everybody was crying and trying to console me. And tears for me didn't come. It was just, I was numb. And then shortly thereafter, it was like the tear floodgates opened. And it was just, (laughs) it was devastating. And then the anger just that whole grief cycle. I don't know. For David, it was... Yeah, I, I think I went into protective husband mode. 
And so I had to be strong for me, for Shalise, and for the family. And I even felt like this sense of having to be strong for the community. So I went into this very, um, and, I, and this wasn't a healthy thing to do. It was definitely not a healthy thing to do. It kind of did internalize it all. And Shalise definitely at that time was lost. I could tell that she was lost. I, I being that I was working, I mean, I, I had I had things that I, I could go do and there was some sense of normality that 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 I could go and engage in. Whereas uh, Shalise was at home and recovering, recovering <laughs> and trying to figure out, well, what, what do I now do in the future? I, I was planning to be a stay-at-home mom and and now I have to get better and go back to work yeah, now, in six weeks. Now, now, now and, what do I yeah. do? Like, and in a society that kind of just wants you to keep going as if nothing happened. Yes. And, and that was very much what I felt. It was like, how, like, I felt like, how can the world be going on? How can they continue on? I can't continue on. My life is shattered, and yet I'm expected to continue on. It was just, it and, was a horrible feeling. And the most cruel thing is that the world around you seems to continue on. Michelle and I have talked about that before. <laughs> the grocery store is still open. Traffic is still running. The news keeps happening as if no one's aware of the fact that your world just stopped. And the world kept yeah. going. That's devastating. It is offensive. It, it's so hard. We're going to take like one. my life it hurts so bad. Yeah. Why, why are you all functioning? And how are you still breathing yes. when it's so yeah. hard for me to? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We do need to take another break. We'll be right back. we're back just such a heavy loss just there's really no words and it's the worst kind of loss the hopefulness of new life and to have such a devastating diagnosis and and process and it was just a lot to watch you guys go through David you were telling me a little bit about your healing process in this and your growth that you've had yeah so like I mentioned before I put up my walls uh, originally. Just that was just how I responded. I went into my own little shell. I would mourn very privately, and just I couldn't express my emotions around other people. It was it was really difficult for me. It was even me. Like I never saw him get emotional. Like yeah. it, he was very very private, yeah, even I, with me. I didn't want my pain to then be compounded already on yours, and so yeah. I recognized. After a couple of years, we went through a process of infertility for about four years after Allison was born, where we were just not able, unable to get, have children. And because I didn't deal with that stress and that, that loss appropriately, it manifests itself as depression, anger. And I eventually got to the point where I was starting to have suicidal thoughts. And I was just, I got into like a really really dark place, primarily because I wasn't allowing myself to feel and to express the emotions that I needed to. I had that idea of, I have to be strong, I have to be strong. And 
I've learned that I don't. Yeah. Uh, you felt the pressure of the male role of society, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And so I definitely learned that I have to go through all those steps. I have to be mad. I have to get mad. I have to yell at the scream. I have to be mad at someone. I was mad at God uh, for a while. Uh, I was mad at other people who were having kids and healthy babies. I worked for uh, the DOD and saw a lot of uh, really horrendous things and was just mad at uh, just the evil in the world. And so uh, once I learned how to express those emotions, I finally was able at a point where I was able to heal and then really be able to start really helping other people at that point. But it was, it was a journey for myself to get there. Yeah. You know, I, I was fortunate. I would say I had uh, a friend of mine within the first four months of John's death, pull me aside and say, grief is a price that demands to be paid. And you will pay this price. So you can do it now and you can feel your feelings and you can allow yourself to be with where you're at in this loss or you can medicate, you can drink alcohol, you can go off the deep end, you can be irresponsible, you can check out of life for a bit. But when you come back, you still have to pay the price. Grief is a price that demands payment. And that conversation changed my life and got me out of doing some really destructive, personally destructive behaviors that I was using to cope. And I started immediately going to feeling my feelings. And I think in part why we don't do that very well is because in society we don't talk about loss and grief and then we don't we want people who experience loss and grief to make us feel better by just moving on from it right and like we we give people uh fictitious timelines like well if you lost a spouse you have a year and then get on with it but it doesn't work that way no yeah I think that's one thing that David and I have learned through this process is is that everybody grieves differently and you have to respect that grief process. You have to give mm-hmm. them that time that they need to, to go through the whole uh, the whole spectrum. Um, so that's been something we both learned. Um, and, and love them when it's messy. Yes, and love them when love it's messy. Love them when it's messy because that's when they need it the most. Yeah. I love that. That That's also shirt material. That is. <laughs> love them when, it, when it's messy. I love that, David. It's true. And, you know, not only, you know, there's, I forget the guy's name, but he has the hierarchy of grief where, you know, the stages. I don't actually really believe in all of that because I've learned that it's not, we don't just go through these stages and then we're done. These stages can come at different times. They can circle back around. You can have a couple stages at once, I have found. Yeah. But... The truth of the matter is, is that we learn to grow and develop and we learn to carry our loss with us. We don't move away from it. We don't move on from it. Right. But we move forward with it. I had a friend, she was a previous podcast guest, Jennifer Funk, that helped describe it as a swimming analogy. And and our good friend, Cindy Cloninger as well. 
I think people say time heals all wounds, as if if you just let the calendar flip enough, you're finally going to just get over it and be fine. When in reality, we're swimmers, and at first maybe we drown at the littlest wave of grief or difficulty. In time, we get a little stronger, a little more skilled. Maybe we develop more coping mechanisms that would be like unto different swimming skills and strokes. But sometimes, no matter how long you've been swimming, you still get overtaken by that one wave or mm-hmm. that one where you are just doggy paddling or holding on for dear life. And I don't think the passage of time takes that away as much as it maybe helps you. Like you said, you get a little stronger and more capable of taking that with you, maybe anticipating waves, maybe learning how to roll through the difficulty, but certainly not just it's gone and you've checked the box. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely experienced that in that I had to, that first year, I was strong, I was resilient, or at least what I thought was resilience. And I came out of that after a year and I thought, okay, great. I did this. I made it the year. We, we made it that year. And then as the infertility progressed and our family wasn't coming, that's when it started for me to compound and then sort of spiral. So, so I totally agree that it doesn't necessarily going to manifest within like a couple of weeks of your loved one passing. It will come in waves and it will hit you when you least expect it. I had that same experience with the one year because everyone knows the first year is hard. The first anniversary, mm-hmm. the first this, the first Christmas, the first everything. And I remember my husband died on November 3rd. I remember making it to November 3rd, almost feeling like I just struggled across some difficult finish line and I'm there. And then I remember waking up November 4th with this sudden realization, this is still my reality. I finished a year, and now I've got 50 more to go. In your case, you guys are so young, 80 more to go, however many it is. David, can you talk for a second, both of you, on, you mentioned kind of that public side, where because you had been well-connected and well-supported and well-loved, and that's beautiful, it also brings with it the flip side where now... Maybe to a degree you're bearing other people's grief or you need to be strong for them or you need to comfort them so they're not so sad for you that it's making them sad for themselves. Talk about that and maybe what experience that was, kind of the two sides of that coin of having a large group of people grieving with you. I think that's probably been one of the most beautiful things that have come out of this is our ability to be able to mourn with others who are going through uh, similar circumstances. And uh, when we moved out here to Florida, uh, we had some uh, dear friends that uh, they went through a very similar experience uh, with their baby, found out that the the baby had some uh, very serious medical conditions, um, didn't have the baby's skull or brain. And, the, the baby, unfortunately, um, died in utero. And everyone around him was like, well, what, what do we do? And I remember telling Shalise, uh, get in the car. We're going over there. I, I don't know what we're going to do when we go over there, but we're just going to go over there. And uh, we, we walked in the door, and obviously they were upset. And the husband was going through that same thing that I did, that, that like, I have to be strong. I have to be strong for my family. And I just went up to him and I, I gave him this hug and it was the most powerful moment, like a sacred moment of just brotherhood and togetherness 
um, allowed him to just grieve and to cry and for me to just be able to hold him and be that strength in that, that moment and to know, like, I know what you're going through. I know how hard this is. Get it out. I'm here for you. Has been for us just just a, such a sacred opportunity. And we've had multiple families yes. that have have experienced loss of their babies that we've reached out to or, or they have reached out to us. And every single time, it makes me grateful that I've gone through the experience that, that I have with Allison. As, as maybe crazy as that sounds, that I, I'm grateful that I, I experienced the loss of a child. In those moments, I'm so grateful that I have because I can truly empathize with them. And saying this uh, the other day is, is we almost get to become like their personal saviors, if, if you will. We, 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 we get to hold them in that moment um, when they're at their most vulnerable and offer that love that they just need right then. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because that's truly mourning with those who mourn. That There's no more Christ-like savior moment than to be with somebody and truly just embrace them and love them in the moment. And there's no greater love, oh, right? Right. And I, I mean, I've had, like David, the same opportunity hugging the woman who's just lost her child. And I call them soul connecting moments. I literally feel like our souls connect. And I know to some extent what she's feeling in a very real way. And it just connects our souls in that moment. And they are, I think that's probably the biggest blessing that has come from losing Allison. And like David, I too am grateful that, I mean, because previous to losing her, if someone passed away, we had no concept of, of death and what it was like to lose a loved one. Or what to say. Or what to say or what to do. But this has provided us with that experience. And it's something that, that we're both very, very grateful for. You know, it, it does sound crazy, right, to say, I'm grateful for this experience. But it is, it's like, it creates value for the experience that you had to go through, right? That you can yes. be there and support others in their time of need. It's really yeah. beautiful. So before you guys go, we're getting to the point where we need to wrap up the show, but, and it's gone so by so quickly. What does resiliency mean to you? Oh, uh, that's such a great question. And um, it's so multifaceted. But I think resiliency uh, to me uh, is number one, you need to have your own personal emotional resiliency. But part of having that personal emotional resiliency is also being able to rely on others and Absolutely. to go go through go through a process. I think uh, as our faith definitely provides us a good framework. But it's sometimes messy, and we have to be, I think this is one thing that, that Shalise and I both experience is being LDS, as we say, well, thank goodness for the plan of salvation. And we thought that was such a trite thing to say in the moment. Um, not that we don't believe in that, but it was such a, it felt like a, like a, like a Band-Aid put on a, 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 a gushing wound. A gushing wound. <laughs> yeah. And 
I think communities around us just like they, they need to be able to just sit there and hold you and cry. Yeah. And do the little things like I don't know. We had we had people bring me uh, deodorant. Deodorant in the hospital. Deodorant <laughs> in the hospital. Uh, just just random things that like may sound so insignificant, but to this day like means the world to me that this individual brought me deodorant. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean. When people would say comments like that, they, I mean, my other favorite comment is, let me know if I can do anything. Oh, yeah. Or, um, you know, they would say these things. And the plan of salvation one, yes, while we believe that is true and families can be together forever, it would make me so upset um, and so angry um, because my life it was shattered. You know, it my life is shattered and you're trying to fit my life in this neat little box with a cute little tied bow and my life just doesn't feel and like that right now the devastation yeah right and so i think yeah the big thing is you just yeah you have to just love the person and be there for them and listen and you don't have to say words you don't have to say words just mourn and, with and them you and you don't come. have to try to fix it or explain it away we experience the same michelle and yeah. i talked about that a lot of times how sometimes and faith is a beautiful thing and a positive outlook is a beautiful thing and and perspective is a beautiful thing and right. i just need someone to let me sit in this and acknowledge that this really is really well like you said messy or sad or devastating or just awful and I can still yeah. have faith, and I can still try to help others, and I can still live a meaningful life. There's no or, but this does hurt, and please don't dismiss it with some trite comment like, well, they're in a better place. Right. Like, no, I want them right. in this place with right. me, or I want to be in the place where they are. So you guys yeah. have shared, yeah. shared so many. I think what's made this conversation so beautiful is just how real it's been, how the whole thing's been vulnerable. There haven't been kind of catchy, trite expressions but just real heartfelt experience and thank you for that I know that's not easy and yet how beautiful for you to share your experiences in a way that then become helpful to others who whether their journey is exactly like yours or not we're all on a journey we're all facing loss and and difficulty and disappointment in our lives and to be able to have those lessons you've learned of, of leaning on those around you of developing your own emotional resiliency but recognizing that relies on other people and, and turning toward each other, loving each other when it's messy, not turning on each other or not always having all the answers and that's okay. So thank you so much for everything you've shared and, and our hearts just go out to you. We're so sorry for sweet little Allison and, and just the devastation that her loss will carry. Have a beautiful, wonderful life for the next 80 years. And I'm so sorry. She's not physically with you every day of that time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great having you guys on here. I really appreciate you sharing this. I know you haven't talked about it publicly a lot. And um, I, I reached out about, oh, I think it was a year ago, early on in the show, to have you guys on. And it just didn't work out. And speaking with you last night, I could hear a little bit of your apprehension and and nervousness about it. But you also felt that it was time. And I just really appreciate your whole hearts that you brought to the table today and your vulnerability. I know that it will help others who are in this situation and to really understand that they're not alone and the things that they're feeling are very normal. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate you guys coming on. So thank you. Yeah. 
And thank you thank to you. every to everyone that's listening. We're so grateful to have you here week after week. We hope that as you listen, you find hope and healing and tips and tricks and maybe just empathy on this journey that we're all on. We're always grateful to our amazing producer, Kellyanne Halverson. If you're listening and you have a story that you're willing to share, please reach out to us. You can find us on social media at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast or email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their life. Have a great day. Take care, everybody. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.